There are two aspects of teaching cannabis medicine that stand out as most challenging to me. The first one is that cannabis educators and caregivers must do a lot of personal work to be good at the job. A caregiver cannot be overreacting to the challenges the patient is going through while also not making light of them. A good caregiver is a difficult blend of stoic, educator, and friend of last resort to the patient. Several times in the last decade, I have sat down with a terminally ill person who has asked me how to use cannabis in their last days so they can be lucid saying goodbye to their family. This is heavy-duty humanity. This is a very serious conversation. That patient doesn't want my tears or concerns for them most often. They want me to stick to business and give them the information they require, give them good product recommendation, and be gone. It is a role of service, and to do it right, it takes a lot of self and situational awareness by the caregiver. The second especially challenging aspect is that cannabinopathic medicine keeps changing. As the paucity of cannabis knowledge we've had is replaced by modern studies with more participants and better analytics, we have to constantly update ourselves on the latest understanding because that understanding is constantly evolving these days. If you are a doctor or a caregiver who found part one of endocannabinoid mechanics and has now returned for part two, thanks for your dedication to the caregiver service role. The humans under your care will be all the better for it. And if you are here for yourself as a cannabis patient like me, know that this material is presented to you so we can all learn and grow and heal together. It is as simple as that. If you want to learn about cannabis health, business, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out, delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we're giving away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive that newsletter. So go to shapingfire.com to sign up for the newsletter and be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I'm your host, Shango Los. Today, my guest is Miyabi Shields, PhD. Dr. Shields is co-founder of Real Isolates, which, ironically, focuses on the importance of secondary plant components and synergistic blends, so essentially whole plant medicine. Miyabi received their PhD in pharmaceutical sciences focusing on the biochemistry of the endocannabinoid system from Northeastern University in 2018. Miyabi has authored or co-authored six peer-reviewed publications and presently has a patent under review for a novel fungus and plant extraction method. Miyabi also has a substantial list of honors and awards, including a 2016 International Cannabinoid Research Society Pre-Doctoral Research Award. Their TikTok channel, at MiyabiPhD, has 130,000 followers and is where I first met Miyabi. Today is part two of endocannabinoid mechanics, and during the first set, we'll talk about how certain cannabinoids function. The second set is all about comparing the various ways we get cannabinoids into our bodies. And the third set is about dosing thresholds for cannabis efficacy for chronic and other serious patients. Welcome back to Shaping Fire, Miyabi. 
Hey, happy to be here. Excellent. Me too. I had really enjoyed our first conversation and it got a really popular response. People people dug the quality and kind of information that you share. So let's go ahead and, and, and do some more. So let's jump right into it. People say offhand that taking THCA is a lot like taking CBD. And that makes sense to me in use, but like, what does that really mean um, at a chemistry level? That statement is too vague to really be useful to most caregivers and patients. Is it just that THCA heals without the euphoria of THC like CBD does? Or does it work on similar receptors or perhaps still something else? Well, you pretty much answered the question yourself there with that one. Oh. <laughs> but, um, yeah, yeah, so it's it's interesting. I actually, this is so weird without my model. Uh, yeah, <laughs> in, in your hands, yeah. Um, but so THCA is the acid, right? It's the acid version of um, THC, which means that it has a extra carboxylic acid group. Um, and carboxylic acid is a carbon that's bonded to two oxygens, and it's really negatively charged, and it's pretty big. Um, so that changes the shape of the molecule, and that change in shape um, affects like a couple of things. The first thing it affects is the ability for the molecule to get into the brain. Generally speaking, the more charged something is, like this, in this case, having a negative charge, um, will decrease its brain penetration. So that's one way in which they're different. Um, the next way is how it binds to the actual receptors. Um, there has been uh, evidence that THCA does bind to like the CB1 and CB2 receptors, but it's far less than THC. And really interesting about people saying qualitatively that it's similar to CBD. Um, for me, what's interesting about that is that both THCA um, and CBD activate or turn on the serotonin 5-HT1A receptor. And that's actually the receptor that's been linked to the beneficial mental health effects of CBD in mm. mouse model research. Um, so I think you're right on the money there when you say that THCA and CBD interact similarly uh, to serotonin receptors. And that's why people think that they feel the same way. That actually makes a lot of sense in practice. The fact that the THCA molecule um, hits the same receptors, though l l more light, <clears throat> more lightly than CBD, because a lot of folks who, well, you know, at this point, every, most people have got access to CBD one way or another. But but you know, a couple years ago, pre CBD being everywhere, um, people who only had access to THC through the um, the heritage market. Market, would just be able to go and, and enjoy uh, undecarbed uh, flour, and it would give them the same kind of you know anti-anxiety and anti-depression benefits, similar-ish to CBD, and and people used it that way. The other thing that's interesting about THCA is it seems to be kind of universally give people serious munchies, you know. So it's very very useful for folks who have lost appetite. Let's take this. Let's go one step deeper into this. So let's talk about these other novel cannabinoids, the the acid forms and and probably the varin forms. As more novel minor cannabinoids are studied and bred for, we're all going to get the opportunity to learn and smoke the acid forms, the, the unheated, unaged forms of these cannabinoids, and also their varin forms of, of THC and CBD and the others. 
To most folks, THC is the queen, of course, and CBD is seriously helpful, but few folks understand the nature of the acid in varin forms other than knowing that THCV tends to inhibit appetite and stops the munchies. So I'm going to kind of hand this to you in a basket. Will you explain (laughs) what the acid forms of cannabinoids are in relation to their non-acid versions and then either during or after do that same thing for the varins? So however you think it's going to be explained more carefully. The the gist of the question is give us a better understanding what the acid and varin forms of these cannabinoids are. Right. So, I mean, the acid forms are, it's, it's very simple. You just add a carboxylic acid to the same position. Um, it's on the phenol or, or benzene ring um, portion of the, of the molecule. And it is, like I said earlier, it changes the structure and the shape and also, you know, the charge. It's, it's called electronegativity. There's a negative charge on the acid um, versions of these. And so they display very unique pharmacological profiles, meaning that um, if you change the structure, it will change the receptors that it interacts with. It also changes, like I mentioned earlier, about like brain permeation, like permeability or the ability uh, for these molecules to get into the brain. Um, so it, it changes like the distribution of where these molecules end up interacting in your body. Um, like it's, there's been some pretty interesting research done um, I believe it's in Australia on the acid versions of both THC, CBD, CBG. Um, so, you know, THCA, CBDA, CBGA, and I think CBDVA also um, to mix up both the acid and the varian form there. Um, there's been a lot of really interesting research that's being done on like anti-epileptic properties specifically um, being linked to the, these forms. And epilepsy shares a pathophysiology with a lot of other um, a lot of other disorders that people use cannabis for, like migraines, or cluster headaches. Um, and so I think it's going to be really, really interesting to see more research come out and also to see more qualitative information come out uh, as people are able to, you know, experiment and see see what it what are the therapeutic applications of it because i definitely believe that there are unique therapeutic applications for these rare variations it's really interesting that we're at this time where patients are able to literally do citizen science because uh prohibition for so long has has stunted scientific research and people who are desperate for relief you know take cannabinoids just to say well all right they're safe enough let's just see what happens to them and so we patients stumble upon things and then we tell people and we tell other they tell people next thing you know there's something coming up from the underground that the more formal scientific you know community needs to to you know jump on and get get evidence to um, to back it up you know how you describe the differences between the acid forms and the regular forms you know it, they're so different. You know, how they access the brain or don't access the brain is different. The receptors that they attach to are different, and it sounds like in different amounts. It kind of gives me the idea that um, we should not consider the acid forms to even necessarily be related in quality to their their non-acid forms. Like CBDA doesn't necessarily act or do what CBD does. THCA does not really act 
or necessarily do what THC does. And it re- it sounds like their their names, you know, cannabigerol for example, that has more to do with the the structure of the molecule chemically and the the addition or removal of this acid component really makes it an entirely different cannabinoid than you know, it's more common non-acid namesake. Yeah, I mean, they, structurally, they're very similar, right? Because all, the only difference is one carbon, two oxygens, and then depending on the pH, there's a hydrogen there or not. Um, so like like in structure, they're super similar. Um, and that's why they sit, you know, THC and THCA, CBG and CBGA, you know, et cetera. Um, so they are very similar. But in terms of like small, yeah, small changes in a molecule will have really, really large changes in, in therapeutic effects profiles. Um, so in terms of like consistency, Considering them different things, like I would just like say as an example, um, you know, in in the pharmaceutical world, as an example, there are different benzodiazepines. They are very similar um, classes, right? But they are all slightly different structurally, and that's something that's kind of like the same here, where like we have the cannabinoids, um, but all the rare cannabinoids are similar, but they do have slight differences in structure that can have really large overall effects on like the therapeutic profile. Right on. So let's talk a little bit about the Varens. So the Varens are, of course, you know, so hot right now <laughs> because Varens so, so hot, so hot. <laughs> because you know, for for most of us, we all started with THC, and then CBD came out and kind of like rocked the whole cannabis world. And then, then as people realized, oh my gosh, if CBD, you know, is such a big deal, all these other novel cannabinoids, uh, we're all hungry for those now and to learn about them. And so we're diving, you know, very, uh, you know, diving deep into them, and then. You know the the Varens seem to be the ones that are going to be hitting the scene next as these as these seeds uh, become available this this coming summer, and really all I all I really know about the Varens is that um, they are uh, there. There's not a lot of them. There have been uh, very few of them because they've been bred out of cannabis more or less as people focused on breeding for THC and I am told that THCV is an appetite suppressant though I haven't really had that experience uh, myself um, because I haven't had a varin dominant THC varin dominant plant yet so with all of that said what are unique to the varins so as they start coming on the market in the next year people have a little bit of frame of mind of what the hell people are even talking about so the the difference between the varins and the parent molecule. So like we're talking about the parent um, molecule being THC or CBD for that matter. Um, those molecules have like if anyone who's seen my videos, I call them a fatty tail. I call it a fatty tail. Those molecules have on the end of it a five carbon. It's called a pentyl chain because pentyl for five. Uh, it has a five carbon chain at at the end of it, and that's just a really it's a fatty. It's just a, a, a piece of the molecule that is very sticky, um, sticky like butter, mm-hmm. greasy. Um, and that has a very unique like chemical property that interacts with, with receptors. Um, the varins only have three carbons instead of five. So they're shorter and there's a smaller fatty tail. So that changes the way that it interacts with receptors. Um, one of the things I think is really interesting about um, THCV specifically is its interaction with a receptor called 
um, TRPV1. I don't know if you are familiar. It um, stands for transient receptor potential one vanilloid one it's not a very sexy name for a receptor Um, but it's it's a receptor that's an ion channel that also interacts with the endocannabinoid system Um, and it's been shown to be important for like pain management anti-inflammatory things and i i'm wondering if it somehow is related to its interaction with trpv1 um, that it causes this you know this effect but i I haven't seen too much research on THCV yet. I'm really excited to see more of it. I think part of the reason why it's difficult to study THCV is because it falls underneath the class of molecules that are regulated since it's an analog of THC. Um, That is at least why I think there's less on THCV than, say, CBD. Um, But I'm really excited to to learn more about it. I actually tried um, years ago. I tried... Like a, I think it was a one to one to one microdoser, like uh, tab. I think it was called a tablingual, was what it was called. Um, and it was CBD, CBG, and THCV, if I remember correctly. Um, and it was very interesting. But I mean, it, you know, that it's, there's a, a number of variables there that I'm changing. Um, but it was a very interesting experience. I really enjoyed it. And I mean, just the, the, pro, the therapeutic profile of it was completely different from THC. When you're looking at the molecular level for the Varens, um, while we don't have a lot of research on them yet for a host of reasons, do you as a chemist have you know educated guesses on what you think the Varens will do? Or is it or are the, are these cannabinoids so different from each other where you're all like only God knows what's gonna the Varens are gonna do after we test them? Yeah, I mean, I guess I don't. <laughs> I, I guess I don't know necessarily, like off the top of my head, what I would predict. Although I think it's interesting that so the shortening, like the shortening of that fatty tail, basically makes it structurally more similar to less fatty molecules, of which there are many in the body. Um, so I definitely think, like, without without saying anything, like for sure, that I definitely think that it has unique pro, like it has a unique profile. It probably has unique transport around the body as well. Um, and I, I know I would be really excited to see it. I mean, I also think it's, you know, this is just something that um, is difficult to think about when we're talking about receptor, receptor pharmacology, which is, you know, how molecules interact with receptors. Um, when we look at these things and we test them, we're testing one thing at a time and we're often looking at something for a very specific reason. Um, you know, many of the rare cannabinoids have not been tested against some of the more classic system um, targets, right? Like dopamine or opioid or serotonin. Some of them have, and there's definitely some information out there. Um, but usually when we discover a rare cannabinoid or where we find something that's, that's structurally related to the cannabinoids, obviously the first thing you think is to test them on the endocannabinoid system. Uh, but it's just, you know, anyways, just research tends to get categorized. If I'm, I'm trying to phrase this correctly, um, like the based on the grant funding structure of, of research and how research is, is funded, um, you end up like having categories of research where labs will, will hyper-specialize in something because you need to. That's what you have to do to get the funding to do your research and do the papers so i think that i mean i think as 
as we expand beyond that and start looking at crosstalk between systems and, and interactions like on, on larger scales, which is starting to happen already, um, we're going to find some really interesting interactions between um, all of these alone. Uh, and then there's a whole nother level when we start talking about putting them together. Yeah, the, the, the crosstalk between the systems is something that is huge. And uh, uh, honestly, I have to give you credit. You're the one who taught me or, or turned, me, <clears throat> turned me on to start thinking about it. And also, that is potentially an entirely uh, additional show. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, don't don't get me started yeah. on the on the crosstalk of endocannabinoid system with other systems. <laughs> right on. Well, let let's hold that aside, and we'll we'll approach that another day. So so um, let's talk about the feeling that cannabinoids uh, give us. Um, we've we talked a lot in the in part one about the the mechanics and how the receptors work and how um, you know the cannabinoids can can block block each other from the receptors and we, we talked a lot about about that mechanics but but you know that you know that sigh of relief that folks get from a cocktail at the end of a workday like when the alcohol hits the bloodstream you can feel your body shift down a few gears and you go like and then like everything feels a little bit easier right um that also happens similarly but but kind of different with cannabis as well right we you know for those of us who prefer cannabis we'll we'll have a bit and then then it hits our bloodstream and it comes on and we have like that similar sigh and we're kind of like you know depending on the kind of cannabis it is we're either floating or in the zone but Whatever it is, we can feel that downshift from the intensity of production mode, right? Whether that's like being at work or, or, you know, watching the kids or, you know, whatever we happen to be doing, it shifts us down into some sort of ease mindset what is happening then right and and if it helps to say what's happening with with alcohol and then compare that to to cannabis i'm all for that but but there's something very specific mechanically that happens in that moment when when the first of the cannabinoids hit the hit the bloodstream after work and we shift down into not work and i'm i think we're all curious what what that is so I'm going to answer this. Qu- We're going to get really abstract here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer this question with something, um, an answer that is pretty much something that can't be proven, but that is also absolutely true, Okay. Um, which is that everything in the brain is subjective to contrast. Um, and in my opinion, what we're describing here is the shift in your perception, right? It's this contrast and that, and how that initial shift, like the first, like the first hit, right? Versus like the second, third, fourth, um, or like what you were describing the first drink at the end of the day, right? Um, is that that initial change, that very first alteration in your perception will always feel different than the continuation of an altered state. Um, and that's, just because everything that we interpret in our brains is is relative <laughs> to what has happened before. I mean, this that's also just true, like, in life and everything in general, right? Like, every single thing that our brain has is built upon a contrast of the things that it's already experienced. Um, and our brains are very used to... Um, what is the way I want to describe this? Our, our brains are very used to getting into, like, a status quo, um, you know, keeping everything the same. 
And then when you cause like a, a dramatic shift in that, that initial shift, it's like, you know, when you're on a hot, it's like, it's a hot day. Like it, it's been really hot here recently and you're in the air conditioning and then you take your first step outside and you're like, whoa, it is hot <laughs> and humid out here. Like, and it's almost like when you step outside for the first time or, or vice versa in the winter, you're in the heat and you go out and it's cold and you almost like can't breathe for a second. Cause you're like, wow, that change in temperature was dramatic. Like that was a dramatic change. Um, and then you're, you're out there for less than 30 seconds or a minute and you're more used to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something more similar to that, except in your processing <laughs> of your brain and in, and in that status, right? Um, because absolutely like the cannabinoids have anxiolytic effects, right? Like they, in, in general, they can, they're relaxing. Um, and that's true all the time. But in that initial, that first initial phase of changing your, like altering your pharmacology in your brain, um, that initial change will feel different. And I think that that has to do with the fact that it's in contrast to what you were like before. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And you know, that that plays out with how we experience it as a human too, because on on our harder days, that sigh of relief seems to be more intense, right? If you've had a light Yeah, if you if you have a light day and you come home and you puff, you're like, ah, today was a pretty good day. Oh, my 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 cannabis is pretty good too. I'm gonna have a good evening, right? It's kind of like like a uniform. But if you've had, you know, a really challenging day that has pushed and pulled you immediately emotionally and you get to the end of the day and it hits your bloodstream you're like oh my god my favorite thing thank god you know and um that makes sense the contrast aspect to it you also mentioned the anti-anxiety um aspects of it um would you hit that on a molecular level like what what is actually happening to kick off that uh did you call it an anxiolytic yeah, anxiolytic. Anxi- so it, this is a kind of a honestly, this is kind of a complicated one to explain because the CB1 receptor. So THC activates the CB1 receptor. That receptor has been associated with decreasing anxiety or having an anxiolytic effect at like lower concentrations. It's also possible that it causes anxiety. So there's this whole like very delicate balance going on. Um, with, with why this happens. But in, in general, um, at least at low concentrations, activating the CB1 receptor is responsible for reducing some types of anxiety. Um, it's not really, I'm trying to think of like, in terms of like research that's been done, um, most of the, most of the research has been in animal models, although some of it has been like repeated in humans. And it seems like, um, it's called a biphasic effect. It seems like at a high concentration there's a second threshold that you'll reach where all of a sudden it reverses and it causes anxiety or it causes paranoia right um and one thing i've been really passionate about educating people about is that our our thresholds are different every one of us will have a different you know threshold for that second level of that effect so for some people they might never get anxiety right um, and others, it might be a side effect that it's, you know, it's very easy for them to, to come across. I would be in that second category. And I got to tell you, it's made me very aware of, you know, in, in the scene, people talk about puff and tough, right? You know, it's like, <laughs> like you know, uh, have, have, have more, finish the joint, have another hit. You know, we, we well, part of cannabis is definitely, you know, there's pressure to always use more, right? And, um, 
And I find that I think that that really stems from a lack of understanding by most folks that of this biphasic effect where, you know, if you have a bit, you have the decrease of anxiety and the increase of euphoria and and your joy increases that's that's wonderful but where that that tapers off and and becomes anxiety causing is different for every person and i for myself i know that you know i i can smoke a certain amount and it'll put me right where i want to be but if i go beyond that i can feel i actually don't know what i feel i feel i mean i think about it as um, my my uh, adrenaline turns on. That's that's how I explain it. I'm like, yep, oh, your your flight, your fight or flight. Okay, so good. All right, well, I'm not that far off. So so I'll I'll have that little bit more, and I'll just like feel it turn on, like like you would feel an air conditioner in your HVAC come on. It's like, oh, air conditioner came on, or oh, first time the heater came on for the fall. You know, you can feel the house rumbling. Well, the same thing. I will smoke a bit, and I'll have a great time, and then I'll and then I'll smoke a bunch, and I'll feel the adrenaline adrenaline kick on and you know I've, I've been smoking for so long now that I'm like oh okay time to go outside for a walk time to step out outside of the party time to you know like whatever to do a little bit of self-care and check in on my set and setting so that I don't get upset however we do have to be aware that we all have got a different threshold for that. And some people may never hit the anxiety causing part. And then there are other people like me who it, my body tends to kick it in pretty low. So, you know, I know that I need to check myself earlier. I run into this actually at conventions a lot, right? Where people are outside and everybody's puffing and trying each other's stuff. And everybody wants me to try their stuff because they're proud of it. And I want to celebrate how great their their grow is. But at the same time, I'm like, if I do that a few times in a row, suddenly <laughs> I'm so anxious, I can't go back into the convention, right? So yeah. so will, will, you, you know, will you speak to that aspect of it about um, you know, like what happens mechanically, if you will, when we, when we hit our biphasic threshold well absolutely so i'm also i am right there with you i'm a total lightweight um specifically when it comes to anxiety and paranoia um and i mean i'm at the point now where like i actually don't usually smoke anything from anyone else because i mix things very specifically for me and and other people are welcome to smoke with me like i would love to smoke I'd love to smoke you out at some point. Like we got to do that. But, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, I'm very sensitive uh, and it's been one of my passions to understand this biphasic effect. And it, it has to do with what's called endocannabinoid tone. And I know we discussed this a little bit on the previous um the previous talk. And we were talking about Dr. Russo's uh, clinical endocannabinoid deficiency, but it, in general, endocannabinoid tone describes the levels of circulating endocannabinoids in your body and then also the levels of the receptors, uh, the CB1, CB2 receptors, probably also TRPV1 and some of the GPRs. Um, these things are all different for each of us. This is also a way of, it's one way of describing neurodiversity. For those of you who are familiar with neurodiversity, uh, neurodiversity is, describes just differences in the way that our brains can all process and have information. Um, and we are all like, we are all very similar in the way that our brains process information. And then we are all very, very different. And one of those ways has to do with endocannabinoid signaling and the actual levels of endocannabinoids. Um, so in terms of being really, really sensitive, it means that for, for both you and I, when it comes to like anxiety or, or paranoia, um, there is 
probably that we have an increased level of CB1 receptors in a very specific part of our brain. Um, that maybe people who do not have a high threshold of that have lower levels of CB1 receptors and are not as sensitive to that. It's also why, um, to a certain extent, if you develop levels of tolerance, sometimes certain side effects will go away uh, because tolerance is usually, uh, it's associated with a decrease in the number of CB1 receptors. So some people, when they develop tolerance, will realize that like certain effects go away. I mean, generally when you develop tolerance, you know, all of the effects go away <laughs> without using more but for it's usually like certain effects one at a time right like some of them go away first um and that has to do with changing the levels of cb1 receptors in very specific areas right on so before we move on i think i want to just make a very intentional plug i mean we made the case very obvious for folks but if you are a listener and you have um you know a low biphasic threshold for anxiety so you you puff a little and you get your no your anxiety decreased and then you puff more and your anxiety increases my friend do not let people bully you into taking more thc Absolutely not <laughs> and if you are one of these people who have got a very high threshold for this and and let's say that you're you know you're dabbing and you can puff with everybody and you can puff all night please do not bully those of us who uh have got a lower biphasic threshold into smoking with you for sure offer it to us but please don't bully people into it because it really is different for folks and if you are if you care for that person enough that you want to get them high, also be, you know, have enough care for them to let them tell you that, you know, they've had enough because we don't want to, we don't, you don't want to make your friend anxious. So, so anyway, uh, I'll get no, off my I, soapbox on that one. But <laughs> I, I absolutely agree with that because all of us are trying to just have a good time, right? Like everyone, want, we're all trying to increase quality of life, <laughs> essentially. And I think that's going to be, that's going to be different for all of us. And I think it's important to know. And also as another PSA, I would love for people to start regularly saying like, oh yeah, my biphasic threshold for, for THC. <laughs> I would love to make that a regular thing. It's actually THC is biphasic for a number of effects. It's not just anxiety. Um, so it's true that each of us has very specific side effects that we're you know, prone to. I'm, I'm also prone to getting very cold. Are you prone to that, Django? Um. I'm not actually. Um, I'm familiar. I'm familiar with it. I actually get cold from um, allergy medications. Oh, interesting. My extremities specifically. I get like cold fingers and stuff. Huh. Yeah. Histamine receptors. Yeah. Interesting. Um, all right. So so let let's hit one more question on this on this tolerance and cannabinoids thing before we go to the break. So so you know we talked about like the the having that end of day toke and how it shifts us down and decreases our anxiety and um, you know. Anybody who's toked and who really appreciates that aspect has probably also come home and have a toke and nothing happens. And, <laughs> and, you, and you toke and you're like, you know, something's not working. And, you know, depending on the person, they might b blame the flower or they might say that, oh, it's my tolerance. But, but you know, as somebody who studies this in the lab, what are your thoughts on, on what are the most common? I mean, do you think it's more often than not like a tolerance response or are there also just some days that we're not going to get high because of the chemical blend in our brain that day? 
So, so I think that there's a number. Of, I mean, tolerance definitely may play a part in it, but I've always, I mean, set and setting, which is usually talked about in psychedelics, right? Usually that's a more common, um, it's a more common thing that people talk about in psychedelics. I really feel like the endocannabinoid system and serotonin system share an extremely strong synergy. I consider cannabis a soft psychedelic. Um, there are certainly psych- near psychedelic experiences, or I would even I would classify them as psychedelic experiences that I've had on cannabis. Um, I think that set and setting are really important, and I think that we don't often. You know, we don't often think about, so set being like the mindset that you're going into and then setting being the environment. Sometimes your environment can be like your, like the stress levels of the day and what you're planning, what you are planning or anticipating on doing. Um, All of these things play a role in your neurochemistry. And I definitely feel like alterations in your neurochemistry will affect the way that you know molecules feel when you take them Um, and it's not always going to be the same and i i know that like what we're looking for is for something to always be (laughs) exactly the same effect but even with i mean everyone if we're going to make the the same um metaphor with alcohol it's the same way you know sometimes it's it's a generally, generally speaking, you have a effect, right? But sometimes you have a really great night and then other times like you're sad and you cry or you're angry. Yeah, that's a really good example. You're right about that. I hadn't made that connection before. Yeah. Uh, but it's pretty similar, right? Because your brain, so the way that our, our brains sort of like function and perceive the, the world um, is always in response. Our brain is always changing. Like we are always in flux. We're always going, our brain's always responding to something and it's always changing. So like right now, you and I having th- this conversation, our brain is in a transition from what it was two minutes ago to what it's going to be two minutes from now, what it was yesterday to what it's going to be tomorrow, what it was last month to what it's going to be next month, etc. There are changes that are going on on every scale of time in the brain all the time. Um, and so that will be different <laughs> depending on a number of factors. And like you brought up stre- having stress, having a really bad day, be, you know, feeling really negative, um, that will alter your neurochemistry it's been shown and proven that when you're happy right like you actually see more your your vision is clearer and you notice more things um i won't get too deep into positive psychology because that's like a whole nother <laughs> that's a whole nother rabbit hole that I, along with crosstalk that we could go on to for forever but i am a very big believer in positive psychology i think that there are subconscious things that we cannot change and that we can't alter. But I also believe that there are conscious things that we can change in our minds and that we can really focus on and behaviorally modify in ourselves that has an impact on our neurochemistry. Um, whether or not these things can be measured at this exact moment, like I, I couldn't tell you. But I know for a fact that set and setting and the way that we approach like an experience really changes the outcome of the experience. I mean, that's, that's part of why cannabis has such a high placebo effect, right? Um, is the expectation and what we are like wanting to receive from the experience having a, having a big impact. I love the idea that some positive soft talk, some, some, you know, thoughts in your brain or some mumbling to yourself about, you know, self care and self love and, you know, being worthy could actually make our high better. I think, I think that's a beautiful thing. And I think that we should make that the, uh, the custom. 
Oh, I I absolutely feel like that's you know that's true. That's why meditation goes so hand in hand. Right on. Can- cannabis and other and other psychedelics, right? Like awareness. Fantastic. All right, Miyabi, we're going to go ahead and take our short break and be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is cannabinoid pharmacologist Miyabi Shields, PhD. For years, organic cultivators have been looking for a replacement for using peat moss. Peat moss has long been the go-to soil amendment for water retention and container growing, but organic growers know that peat moss is an unsustainable resource, and the mining of peat bogs destroys habitat and releases sequestered carbon. But peat moss works so well that many have continued to use it. But now there's finally a revolutionary replacement for peat moss that shares the same benefits while also being sustainable. Pit moss sounds and acts like peat moss, but instead of being mined from fragile ecosystems, it actually is made from upcycled organic paper and tree bark. Pit moss is excellent at retaining water in your substrate and creating air pockets and tiny living environments for microbes. Pit moss instantly increases aeration, nutrient absorption, and water conservation too. Carefully and locally sourced, pit moss is the result of decades-long research into the use of recycled paper fibers. Pit moss has the fluffy nature of peat moss and handles exactly the same. And like peat moss, pit moss is inert, so it won't change your pH. Available in a range of preparations, including a nutrient-enhanced blend, a coco-coir blend, and also as an organic soil conditioner with no added nutrients. Pit moss is also available as an animal bedding. So go to pitmoss.com now to learn more. That's P-I-T-T. M-O-S-S dot com. Growing healthier, more sustainable plants. Pit moss. While I love growing under the sun, there's a lot of good reasons to grow indoors. And if you're like most folks, you want a lighting source that grows high-yielding, healthy plants without using excessive amounts of electricity. BIOS Lighting creates biological lighting solutions that brings the natural brilliance of the outdoors into your grow room. BIOS Lighting has the attributes that I look for in a horticultural lighting solution. I've bought those cheap lights online, and they're difficult to work with and fail in no time. In contrast, my BIOS LED light is industrial grade to last a long time. It is IP66 wet rated, so little foliar overspray won't harm it. It is easy to clean without taking it down, and of course, the most important aspect, it is built for the exact light spectrum I want for great yielding, healthy cannabis plants. And it doesn't hurt that their lighting rigs look badass too. Many horticultural LED lighting systems are based on irrelevant performance metrics and people love to argue online about these numbers. I prefer to judge on par photon efficiency and how happy my plants are. And the BIOS lights exceed my expectations in these categories. BIOS lights have an optimized broad spectrum that maximizes photosynthesis and plant growth while also providing the ideal conditions for superior par efficacy and a comfortable visual experience. I also love their attentive and overeducated customer service folks. BIOS starts with a team of biologists before getting the electrical engineers involved. They have studied how light impacts cannabis plants and devised an overall strategy that works. I encourage you to check out their website at bioslighting.com to learn more about how this strategy can work for you. And Shaping Fire listeners can get a special deal. Use the discount code SHAPINGFIRE, all one word, no caps, for 10% off your entire purchase. That's bioslighting.com. 
For 20 years, Humboldt Seed Company has been family-owned and providing reliable, high-yielding seeds originating in Northern California. While the current trend is to slap one super male into a line of hype strains, Humboldt Seed Company continues to breed with precision and care by doing large sifts and back crosses to emphasize the absolute best traits that a line has to offer. This kind of breeding takes time, talent, and space to work. No matter what kind of aroma you are particularly into, Humboldt Seed will likely have something you'll love. If you love fruit, you can choose from banana, mango, apricot, papaya, blueberry, blood orange, melon, and lemons across their various strains. They have all gas, glue, and classic sour diesel lines as well. Of course, there are the Heritage California strains like OG Kush, Jack Hare, and Headband. And their award-winning blueberry muffin is one that delights just about everybody's palate, especially when concentrated. Humboldt Seed Company is proud to bring to market the infamous Freak Show Cultivar 2, which has a great THC high, but looks so much like a fern that some folks can't even identify it as cannabis. It's a plant that really needs to be seen to be believed. If you're looking for well-balanced CBD seeds, Humboldt Seed Company can turn you on to CBD strains that actually have flavor, like the dill and pepper terpenes of Willie G's Lebanese Land Race. Whether you are looking for regular, feminized, or autoflowers, Humboldt Seed Company has the gear to make this your best growing cycle ever. Visit HumboldtSeedCompany.com today to check out their line of vigorous genetics, download their catalog, and find out where you can pick them up. You can also check out their Instagram at The Humboldt Seed Company to check out their gorgeous flowers and the extraordinary freak show plant. Humboldt Seed Company. Let them know Shango sent you. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is cannabinoid pharmacologist, Miyabi Shields, PhD. So, Miyabi, we've talked about these different um, methods of uh, bringing the cannabinoids into our body, but anybody who has spent a lot of time with cannabis and has, you know, smoked and had edibles and maybe tried a sublingual, they know that they all hit different. And, And when I say hit different, I mean that they come on at a different rate and they feel different in the body and often they will have different medicinal effects depending on how we ingest them. So would you please explain the differences in how our body absorbs the cannabinoids, that method of action, and then the differences chemically so we as patients can use the best mode for our desired relief? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to hit the first two, the two largest and most significant routes of administration, uh, which is edibles, which is an oral administration or smoking. Um, So with edibles, there's, well, there's three differences in the two routes. The first one is like the actual absorption, right? Um, So that means when, when and where do the molecules enter your body and how are those molecules entering your, entering your body? When you smoke, um, all of the cannabinoids are absorbed in the lungs they get from the lungs into the blood and go to the brain directly and it happens all at once i mean it happens in like less than a second (laughs) that is in there also just for every also a psa like don't hold in your hits like it happens really really quickly you don't have to like 
don't hold your breath. Like, that's no, don't do that. <laughs> and and let's, since we're going to hit that, and let's also re- reference uh, from the Robert Littman episode all on cannabis and breathing that not only is it not necessary to get your cannabinoids out, as Miyabi is saying, but the longer you hit your hit, the more damage you are causing your lungs and your cilia from having the hot heat in your lungs. And like smoke particulates and other things that will come over the longer you're holding your breath. So definitely, yeah, no holding of breath. Right on. Uh, it happen- anyways, it happens really quickly. So all of the cannabinoids get absorbed, like let's say within one second of each other. All of them go to the brain and then have their effect. That's why um, usually it's like 10 minutes, right? There's like a 10 minute onset between the blood going from your lungs, your heart pumps it up to your brain. Really, really quick. Um, with edibles, you eat them, they go through your stomach, and then they're absorbed in the small intestine they actually had to pass through the liver first before then your your body pumps them all the way through and then it gets to your brain um so in terms of absorption it takes a really long time i mean it could take anywhere between like 30 minutes to sometimes like three hours i've heard people say that like an edible has hit them like four to six hours later um it also depends a lot on like what you've eaten that day what does your diet look like do you have any gi issues or gi motility issues that you struggle with right um so these things can all alter like the length of time and that's has to do with absorption um that's the first thing is absorption the second difference is metabolism so in the smoking example when you're smoking it in the lungs it goes straight to the brain there is no metabolism um between that between that stage between it going from your lungs to your brain uh, there's no metabolism so it's thc um and they in terms of like getting metabolized or deactivated it also happens all at once which is kind of why smoking hap- like has a very short duration of action um that's because as um as the smoke is like after it goes to your brain, then it goes to your liver and it all gets metabolized. Um, as opposed to edibles, they get metabolized first. So when you eat an edible, it gets absorbed in the small intestine, goes through the liver and gets metabolized. Um, most of us make 11-hydroxy as the primary metabolite, which is um, more potent and has stronger effects. Um, I think there's, so there's another metabolite, it's a carboxy version of it that is inactive. I do think that a significant portion of people who cannot feel edibles create that metabolite. Um, I would love for someone to study that, um, because there is a significant portion of the population that, that can't feel edibles. That's like a whole other topic. Um, but for those of us who can feel edibles, your your body metabolizes THC into 11-hydroxy. That is actually the molecule that will go into your brain and cause effects, which is part of the reason why edibles feel different. Um, and then, like I said earlier about the absorption happening more slowly over time, that means that 11-hydroxy is present more slowly over time and it lasts much longer. That's another reason why the duration of action is longer before it gets deactivated. Um, And then the third difference, which people don't usually talk about, is um, transformation at high temperatures. So cannabinoids are pretty sensitive molecules. And when you heat them to temperatures that are above, say, like 300 degrees Fahrenheit, um, you know, you're causing a significant change in in molecular structure for a significant portion of, of the cannabinoids that are present. Uh, for example, like I think at 300 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, studies done on THC, it was about 30% of the THC converts into CBN or cannabinol. Uh, that's a dehydration reaction. So basically, um, two hydrogens are removed from, um, is it two? 
there's there's two extra double bonds in the in the top ring um and it changes the actual formulation and actually this is like my main this is my main research focus so i maybe maybe stop me because i'll go on forever and ever about this one but um basically if you're smoking and you're using a lighter a lighter can reach temperatures well above a thousand degrees fahrenheit right if even if you're smoking a j right or like spliff or something you have an ember the the actual that's a whole different chemistry because the actual area of the ember is a different temperature than the area right above it. And so there's this, I mean, joints are very complicated, which I, I also love. Um, but you get this this very high temperature transformation uh, and a significant amount of the cannabinoids are, are transformed. So you get a different formulation. And that's the third, the third difference because most edibles are made to preserve um, THC or more recently also now CBD. Um, and that is part of the reason why smoking feels so different is because it is actually a completely different formulation of cannabinoids. All right. That idea that um, the, the lighter ch- uh, can change the cannabinoids, that in and of itself is like an, a, a huge thing that I put into my notes that we should talk about later because we could we could do the rest of the show on that. But let's let's hold that aside for a moment and focus on on first the um the the two different forms of THC or or cannabinoids that can come out of the liver. Um you said we could, you know, that's a whole new path, but let's let's hit that path. So right. so there are, you know, there are patients that talk to me regularly who who are uh, concerned/annoyed that they eat edibles and nothing happens to them or they can, you know, they can eat a 100 milligram uh THC rich uh, edible and like get a little high and and they're both frustrated because it's much more expensive for them and if and if they are a patient who needs edibles then they're in a, in a very difficult position and 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 you said that when the cannabinoid goes through the liver it it'll break into 11 hydroxy or or a second one that I that I actually missed the name of so are you suggesting that that each human has got their own ratio of THC into the liver, and then coming out is this different percentage between these the eleven hydroxy and the secondary one. And and if it's less eleven hydroxy, you may have to eat a whole lot more edible in order to get the results and the relief that you're looking for. Yeah, this is actually a problem that this is a problem that I brought up um, to other scientists a couple weeks ago at an international conference for like cannabis science, and like no one had had heard of this phenomenon. I would not be aware of this phenomenon if it wasn't for TikTok. Actually, mm. I'd never heard of it before. Uh, I think that there are three possible. There are like there are some possibilities for why this happens to people, um, and I and none of these have been proven yet, um, but they are just all theory, right? The first one is like a problem with absorption there's some sort of problem where the thc doesn't really get absorbed at all um, i do not think this is a this is a likely problem because of like how thc is it's such a fat soluble molecule it, it comes over membranes really really easily so i don't think that that's a possible like i don't think that's like the possibility for most people but it's it's an option right some people might have an altered microbiome for example or differences in, in absorption and then they just are are not actually absorbing the the THC in the small intestine. Um, the next two pro- the next two possibilities have to do with metabolism. So 
there are two phases of metabolism. Uh, phase one was the one I was talking about with um, hydroxy, the, the formation of 11-hydroxy. Phase one is normally just oxidation, um, so you add an oxygen. And the other option was a carboxy. I, I don't want to name the whole name because it's just like numbers and not fun. Um, but the second version of it is a carboxy, which is just a carboxylic acid instead of a hydroxyl group, which is just another. It's basically one extra oxygen. Um, similar to what I was talking to about uh, THCA, right? A carboxylic acid versus THC. In this case, though, um, the our bodies add the carboxylic acid to the 11 position, which is right at the top of the molecule. Um, that one is it. So that carboxy metabolite is inactive and the determining factor of which one of those molecules our body makes has to do with our, our metabolic enzymes in our bodies. Like, so our body is absorbing, uh, the THC goes to the liver in the liver. There are enzymes present and those enzymes determine what happens to that molecule. Um, maybe it's a mutation in the enzyme. Maybe it's a variation in the, the levels of these different enzymes that are, that are present. Right. Um, but it's possible that for the people who can't feel edibles, their body is not making 11 hydroxy. It's only making this inactive version. Mm. So they're taking, they're eating the edible, the THC goes in and then your body turns it into something inactive. Um, that's not to say that that metabolite doesn't have any effects. I, I haven't seen a lot of research on it, honestly. Um, so it could be doing something, but it's not having the psychoactive intoxicating effects. Um, because it's it's not active right, um, right and then the the other option has to do with phase two metabolism which is the second phase uh what our body does is it takes the molecule and it adds a a sugar acid like a glucose molecule um it's called glucuronidation and that inactivates the molecule as well if you think about it it just takes a sugar molecule you snap the sugar molecule on it boom the thing is turned off it's inactive. Mm -hmm. So there's an, another option, which is that people might have a very, very fast phase two metabolism. So perhaps someone that's taking an edible for specifically for THC, they can't feel it because they take the edible, their body does phase one metabolism, but then it immediately does phase two and then everything is inactive. Wow. Um, I would love to see research on this. Um, and also the, there is the option that there's tolerance, right? Like there's, there's some option there that, you know, some people who are really heavy cannabis users develop a tolerance and then, you know, you don't, you don't see these marked effects with edibles. Although I have seen people say they've taken hundreds and hundreds of milligrams. And so that just doesn't add up when you take into the account that these people also probably smoke flour and can feel a hundred milligrams of THC. Yeah, right? right. Yeah, totally. If they um, smoked it, they would, they would get hit upside. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it just, it just doesn't, that doesn't match up to me. That it means to me that there's a problem with like absorption or metabolism. And actually this is something I'm collaborating with another pharmaceutical scientist on to like, Establish like how how prevalent it is um, in the population, and um, her name's Riley. She's also a pharmaceutical scientist, and Riley and I used TikTok actually to poll how many people could feel them. It's a significant population of people who can't feel them, um, and I think it's something worth worth looking into to figure out at least at least why. 
All right, so then let's thread the needle. So if we've talked about um, smoking on one side being uh, fast and heavy hitting, and then we've hit on uh, edibles, which are significantly slower, but can be stronger and more, I don't know, time-released, longer-acting, what about sublinguals? Because you're not smoking it. It goes in the mouth, but it also doesn't go through the gut. It goes through your your you know <clears throat> your mucosal membranes <clears throat> excuse me um so so what what is that intake like chemically okay so when we're talking about sublinguals like are we talking about like tinctures that you put under your yeah tongue, t- right? tinctures that you or, or a sublingual spray or normally it is uh, a cannabis oil that has got a little bit of residual um ethanol in it so that when it hits your your mucosal membranes or just like the the the, the, the tissue in your mouth the um the the residual ethanol takes the uh, whole the whole plant medicine over or through the tissue yeah, so like I don't know if something is wrong with my mouth, but I have never been able to feel sublinguals successfully. So I'll just talk about it in theory. Um, in theory, when you absorb something either sublingual or subbuccal, which is like a cheek, uh, there are some cheek swabby uh, products that I've seen before on the on the market. So both of those methods of action should bypass first pass metabolism. They should be really quick, similar to smoking in the lungs, um, and be I guess have comparable advantages uh, as smoking. Um, No transformation, obviously, because there's no heat. Um, But, you know, just like personally, anecdotally, I haven't like had tons of success with that. And then also, if we are talking about a tincture and you put it under your tongue and then eventually you do swallow it, that then becomes inedible. (laughs) Like whatever is left (laughs) that, that didn't yeah, that that, that is true. Level. You know, they're, they're, the 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 street wisdom on this, at, at anyway, is that there's so, there's a small amount of fluid in a tic, in a tincture normally, and you put it underneath your tongue, and you know you might hold it, you might not, depending on on what the tincture is made out of. It may burn too much to hold it there, but whatever. You 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 put it in your mouth, you swish it around a little bit, and you swallow it. And when I talk to folks, anecdotally, folks. Folks believe that the THC is absorbed in their mouth, and then if they swallow it, you know, there, it, it's, a, it's a long road from the mouth to the gut, and it's going, you know, through the throat and the esophagus and all this kind of stuff on their way down, and that the rest of it is actually soaked in on the way down in, in before it gets to the intestines, and therefore it never becomes an edible. How does that hit for you? Um, I don't agree with that. Right on. It's fine. It's fine for people to think that, though. I don't. I don't have any proof that that doesn't happen. But Mm -hmm. I. I think it becomes inedible. That's my. My personal opinion is whatever doesn't get absorbed in the mouth, then when you swallow it, um, maybe there is like trace absorption in like the esophagus or the, uh, or the stomach. But in like in general, the small intestine is what's built to absorb like exogenous like in general the small intestine is where our body like absorbs all like when you eat food there is it's like very it's similar there is some sublingual absorption then when you eat it like very i would say like i I don't know the statistics on this i'm not a gi person um but i think most of the absorption happens in the small intestine yeah yet another thing we've hit on today that needs more study yeah i mean i i don't know what's wrong with my mouth (laughs) <laughs> I can't that I can't feel I cannot feel sublinguals ever pretty much with I I don't know I I feel them like an edible like way later you know 
All right, so let's let's move on to um, the ever popular method of suppositories, and you know even though suppositories get a little bit of a giggle because we're you know we're popping something into our rectum, um, there are a lot <laughs> of patients that I have worked with that um, you know it. When they discover this, they they literally cry with relief and joy because um, either they have got severe stomach problems and they have a hard time eating anything, or B, um, they have a... um, you know, they've got an issue in the liver where they are not making the 11-hydroxy, so they're not feeling anything, and for whatever reason, they can't smoke. Or they're cancer patients, and they're trying to, you know, take in absurd amounts of, of cannabinoids all at once, and, and you know, uh, taking it orally gets them super-duper high, and so they, they introduce them the cannabinoids to their body um, as a suppository. Um, so there is absolutely a need for it. And and honestly, some people just say that they like the high better. I mean, I've, I've definitely run into folks who are using their cannabis recreationally as a suppository. And, you know, that's pretty darn rare. But, you know, people are into all sorts of stuff. Um, <laughs> so so let's talk about it. So, you know, the, the, as, as, as I understand it, the, the suppository will, will break down and then the cannabinoids are um, absorbed by the tissue along the walls of the rectum. But I really don't understand what the chemistry is beyond that point. So I believe that suppository is also bypass first pass metabolism, which means that it's interesting that you mentioned that the high is different from suppositories um, because that indicates that there is like a, a difference in the metabolism or the absorb, like, well, not the absorption, but the metabolism, well, also the location of absorption, um, you know, so that there's no metabolism, which means that it's not 11 hydroxy, right? So it gets absorbed and then it goes to the brain. Um, I believe it's also faster because it doesn't have to go all the way through your stomach to your, you know, your, um, small intestine and through the liver and get metabolized. Um, you know, I think it's like in terms of like stigmatization and talking about things that have to do with like our private parts, like, you know, this is a really important method that I think is very valuable for the reasons that you've mentioned, like people who have severe nausea. It's also really I've heard that it's been I'm I'm assigned female at birth and I have a menstrual cycle. And I have heard that suppositories are really, really useful for people who have PMDD or who have other sorts of like hormonal or like painful um painful issues like endometriosis or um, cysts. And I've actually heard qualitatively from, from quite a few people. Actually, I've, I'm going to blank on her name, but there's a, there is a research scientist who's looking into this um, specifically. And I think that in terms of like method and, and options, I think I would just describe it as like a very, like a very, very useful option, a very, very useful therapeutic method that has definitely deserves its place amongst like cannabis products. And I actually, you know, when I see them, they sell out here like crazy. Like I actually haven't been able to get my hands on one ever. They sell out like immediately. Yeah, demand is really high. And, you know, a lot of people go through a lot of effort online to make 
um, you know, fancy ones with like shea butter and coconut oil, and they put them in, um, you know, little little formed ice trays and and put them in the freezer so they harden. And you know, it's always a little giggle when you when you know when you when you <laughs> when you put it there because of it being cold. But <clears throat> uh, I know enough patients who do this you know, a couple times a day where they just don't even bother <clears throat> making the 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 proper shea buttery coconut suppository. And they just take a um, cellulose capsule, put the RSO in there, and then apply it because the, the fluid that is in the rectum is plenty to break down a cellulose capsule, and, and, and there you go. So, you know, you can be fancy and gentle, or you can just, like, get her done. As, and, you know, and as we know, really sick people, they usually just go for the get her done option. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. I mean, in terms of, like, not needing to... Yeah, that, that's that's it. That's fascinating. I never thought about the do-it-yourself method for that. I always thought there was some sort of fancy contraption, or like, <laughs> I guess like an, like an applicator. I don't, well, I, don't I mean, know. The, I mean, I mean, there, are, there. Are, I mean, you know, the pharmaceutical industry they can make everything more complex, right? Right. I'm sure. <clears> so, I'm sure there will be. A, I'm sure there will. I'm be sure some there's point. something about that. You know, one thing that you said that really stands out for me is that. Um, you know, you said that since a suppository would skip the the level one uh, uh, in the in the liver, and so the eleven hydroxy is not being made, a suppository would be the only non smoking option that actually delivers THC to the brain unchanged. In in theory, sublingual too, right? But oh I yeah, that's true I too. Right? Uh, yeah, in theory. And then for I you. and then I know and then I know. I, yeah, in theory for me, <laughs> other people with normal mouths that <laughs> that happens. Um, I know also that there's been a lot of research into transdermal um, applications, but to my knowledge, um, no one has been able to crack the transdermal situation where it actually enters the bloodstream. So yeah. like to, so so far to my knowledge, like transdermal, which I love topicals also. Like I think they definitely have therapeutic validity. But they don't enter the bloodstream, right? It's like a very high local concentration. Hmm. All right. Well, that would be that. That. Well. All right. Let's 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 go for it. So. So. All right. So let's talk about <laughs> that. So the. Um, uh, at one point, I agreed with that statement, but but I have come across enough people who are using a topical that has got a uh, an ethanol component, and they they use a THC rich topical, and then if they use enough of it, they actually feel the uh, the intoxication from the THC, and um, I have heard just anecdotally that people will who don't smoke will will uh test positive on a urine analysis after only using thc rich topical so are you saying well, the, you have explanations testing, for that or yeah. or okay no, no i'm really interested also in terms of like the ethanol topical that makes people feel psychoactive effects i, I want to talk to you more about that but first about about the drug testing um, a lot of the drug tests are not testing for thc they're testing for the metabolites um and so that's actually possibly, it's possible with, with any of the topicals um, because your body will metabolize them and the metabolites can stick around for like months, right? Uh, it's the question of whether or not it gets in the blood and up to the brain in like its active form. 
Interesting. So wait, the metabolites, your body will produce metabolites even if the THC doesn't reach the blood. Or like by, I think what my thought process was by the time the THC reaches the blood and like is being cleared out of the topicals um, from topicals is that it already has been metabolized. And that's why you don't get any activity because it doesn't enter into the brain. And I'm, this is just, that's just my like thought process behind it. I don't actually know. I should I'll look it up actually <laughs> later. Um, but interesting that you said that you've had people who felt a psychoactive effect from topicals. Do you know, did they apply it in a very specific place on their body or is there? Well, uh, I can know? give you two, I can give you two answers for that. So okay. the, the first answer is um, I normally find people say they have felt it more when they have to cover a large area, right? So that this okay. is usually people who have got back and hip or leg issues oh, where back. They're, Interesting. they're covering their back, their shoulders, their, their, you know, their hip bones, maybe their, their tush. And so, so, you know, it's, it's not common. As a matter of fact, I've never come across it with somebody who's using it for like, um, like, uh, hands. Uh, yeah, hands, elbow arthritis, tennis elbow, stuff like that, because it's a very small area. It's always been people who are taking care of a large swath of the human body. And then second, you know, I have been making tinctures for myself for over a decade for my brain injury. And I know that, um, I had to start wearing gloves when I made my tinctures because if I had a spill and I cleaned it up, the the alcohol with um, the suspended cannabinoids in it would, I'm assuming, soak through my hands and I would get like hella high and have to go lay down. And I'm like, oh, all right, guess who's going to start using latex gloves? And so, and so that's my own personal experience. So, so my belief is certain that, that THC can be carried through the skin with ethanol. And then the topical people who I have, you know, learned from have said, you know, you know, the emu oil and all these other things are all good for the skin. But if you really want to take cannabinoids to the skin, there has to be an ethanol component for efficiency and expediency. I'm not a topicals expert, so I am not standing here saying that this is all to be true. Uh, I'm just saying this to inform the question. That is so fascinating, and I'm going to go home today, mix my topicals with ethanol, and cover my back in it. Like, right I, am, <laughs> I am so interested in that. I mean, the, with the back, that's it's interesting because, you know, the spinal cord is the central place where the peripheral and central nervous system, like, interact with each other. So, obviously, there's a lot going on there. Um, but I, I'm fascinated by that. Also, like, many, many scientists would be fascinated by that because there's been a lot of studies about penetration, uh, like, skin penetration, like, specifically, and... Um, wow, that's, that's awesome information. I'm definitely going to, you know, I'm going to home trial that home experiment that <laughs> right on. tonight. It, it's nice that, that we happen to be working with a plant that we can home trial stuff, right? I mean, I mean, anybody who listens to this show knows that I'm a huge fan of citizen science. And I understand that often citizen science can kick out bro science. And that's, a, that's something we always have to watch out for. But, uh, you know, the, even though we have a larger and increasingly larger uh, scientific community around cannabis, we have a hell of a bigger community of cannabis patients who are trying to do their own research at home to relieve their suffering and there's so much to be learned from those folks oh yeah it's exponential like the power is in the people i'm a huge believer of personal experience because like when it comes down to it 
we are all different. So no one's going to know you as well as you know yourself. Like no one is going to understand you and the way that you feel the way that you do. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's weird, though. Not all scientists are into citizen science. You know, I have spoken with uh, cannabinoid researchers who will, I'll talk to at conventions, and they will talk trash about the patients doing their own stuff. And I can understand their frustration because there's a lot of inaccurate science that's handed around by patients. But at the same time, I don't think that's a reason to discount citizen science. It just means that it needs to be checked, just like I have to check regular you know, professional scientists to find out who's paying for their studies. You know, any kind of research needs to be looked at, um, you know, oh, with open I, eyes. I think that that just means that we should put more effort into public education so that people doing the citizen science are more educated in scientific theory and like able to execute it themselves. I think that this like the idea that we shouldn't be experimenting on ourselves is just naive. Like every single human in your entire life, all you're doing is experimenting all the time. Like it's, it's an N equals one or, or, you know, when you find your person an N equals two or for people who are polyamorous an N equals X like number of, of people. Right. But no, I, I think that um, I agree that it, it can be, there can be negative like myths and um, like, what did you call You called it bro science, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I agree that there are problems that, that arise from that and that, you know, that's unfortunate that people can believe that that's true at face value. But I, I also think that there's been some pretty important things that come out of qualitative experience. And historically, that was like all we had yeah. in the past, like previous 4,000 years. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, uh, a lot of the new cannabis knowledge is, is just because of the machinery that we're using to look at it with. Which comes with, with like a bunch of assumptions. I mean, I love my field. I'm obsessed with molecular pharmacology. But I mean, we would t we would need a whole other show for me to just explain to you all of the assumptions that go into what I did, which is in vitro pharmacology, right? Which is actually like screening a drug molecule against a, a target. And I, I did structural biochemistry of endocannabinoid system targets. There is just an exponential number of assumptions that you make in research science that doesn't, you know, they call it the transition from bench to bedside, right? From, from the laboratory bench to the bedside of a person. And I think that like discounting human experience is, and like un invalidating it, I think that that's detrimental to the cannabis industry as a whole, because we have so much information out here and so much power in people who are trying to increase their quality of lives and so much information information that gets lost because we're just going to devalue it you know yeah you know I, I i'm chuckling to myself how much fun it would be to do a show called uh invalidating cannabinoid science and we just go into all the trash are we gonna eat some mangoes and then <laughs> yeah totally <laughs> so we can be more high all right um so thank you for that Viabi. let's go ahead and take that uh second break and get that out of the way you are listening to shaping fire and my guest today is cannabinoid Pharmacologist Miyabi Shields, PhD. There is no doubt that autoflowering cannabis plants have finally come into their own, and Night Owl Seeds works tirelessly, bringing you autoflower genetics that are reliable, thriving, and with extraordinary terpene profiles. Night Owl Seeds is an industry leader because of the focus work of their founder, Daz. Daz's passion about the cannabis plant and pushing what autoflowers can do, and cultivators know that these efforts show through in his seeds. And night owl seeds really are extraordinary. 
Just take a look at the thousands of photos by fans on Instagram. The proof is there and obvious. Terpenes are complex and rich. Plants have vigor. If you are a fan of Mephisto genetics like I am, you'll likely also love Night Owl Seeds. Night Owl founder Daz worked with Mitch Mephisto to build the Mephisto brand for years, including breeding Mephisto's much-loved Sour Stomper and Cosmic Queen cultivars. I'm growing both Night Owl and Mephisto this year because I want the best. And Night Owl Seeds knows how to cultivate community, too. Daz puts out great stickers, exclusive packaging for limited runs, and desirable freebies. He really draws you in if you love creative branding. Night Owl even has the Secret Owl Society Text Club. Just text the word Night Owl, one word, to 760-670-3130 for early announcements and exclusive opportunities. Of course, you can see lots of photos and find out about upcoming drops by following the Night Owl Seeds Instagram too, at daz.nightowl. That's D-A-Z dot Night Owl. You can get your packs of Night Owl Seeds at several distributors, including DC Seed Exchange, Insane Seeds, and Hembra Genetics. That's Night Owl Seeds. There's a difference because we're different. Sometimes the topics I want to share with you are far too brief for an entire Shaping Fire episode. In those instances, I post them to Instagram. I invite you to follow my two Instagram profiles and participate online. The Shaping Fire Instagram has follow-up posts to Shaping Fire episodes, growing and processing best practices, product trials, and, of course, gorgeous flower photos. The Shango Los Instagram follows my travels on cannabis garden tours, my successes and failures in my own garden, insights and best practices from personal grows everywhere, and always gorgeous flower photos. On both profiles, the emphasis is on sharing what I've learned in a way that you can replicate it in your own garden, your own hash lab, or for your own cannabinopathic health. So I encourage you to follow at Shaping Fire and at Shango Los and join our online community on Instagram. Over the years, Shaping Fire has been invited to sponsor several cannabis cups, and I've said no to them all. It wasn't until the Autoflower Cup that I really wanted to help promote something, and the producers, Sebastian and Carla, didn't even invite me. I approached them. I told them that Autoflower Cup was important to me for three reasons. First, it was obvious that they were going for a friends and family vibe instead of some sort of commodified cannabis vibe. This event was going to gather really cool folks. Second, the event had a ton of cool stuff to do and to learn and to participate in. The event isn't just about cannabis. It's about living life fully, enjoying community, eating together, laughing and listening to music, and mushrooms. Third, and most important to me personally, the event was authentically for the autoflower community, and the autoflower community needs a place too. Autoflower is about getting high, sure, but I find that much of the autoflower community is still focused on cannabis patients, home grow, sharing best practices, sharing seeds, and humility. These are the ideals that I share with the event, and I wanted to make sure I did my part to help it succeed. Announcing the 2021 Autoflower Cup, August 6th, 7th, and 8th in Lillooup, Washington, just outside of Seattle. This over-21 event is presented by Camp Ruderalis. The Autoflower Competition is open to everyone, commercial and home growers, so get your skills recognized and enter today. A cup win now will make you a leader in the community. Here comes the ear candy. Stunden Glass Hookah Lounge. Pop-up Magical Butter Chocolate Shop. Waterfront Marketplace with an array of vendors. There will be an old-school Autoflower Seed Swap. 
joint rolling competition, cannabis cooking demos, solventless squishing demos, and late night documentary screenings of fantastic fungi. Chef Sebastian Carosi's award-winning classics like Elk Chili, Kobe Beef Kimchi Dogs, Oyster Po'boys, and Razor Clam Chowder. Wild oyster harvesting, mushroom foraging, s'mores around the campfires each night. Dan Jimmy of Mandalorian presentations, psilocybin mushrooms presentations, camping, glamping, RVs, and Airbnb. So check out CampRuderalis.com for those details and follow the Instagram at the Autoflower Cup 2021. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shango Los. And our guest this week is cannabinoid pharmacologist, Miyabi Shields, PhD. So, Miyabi, we got to go back to the mango, right? Like, like we, <laughs> we and, threw it in there at the end. Yeah, we threw <laughs> it in there at the end. And, like, you know, there are so many people still talking about having mangoes before you get high because it helps. And this is, this is untrue. And let's get it directly from a scientist. Please break it down. I believe that if you believe it will make you higher, that it will. <laughs> That's what I normally say. Well, you know, it's it's placebo, right? Essentially, it feeds into set and setting, right? If you believe it to be true, your 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 brain tends to, you know, tell you that you're right. So let me if I break it down to like what people normally talk about, it's myrcene, right? People yeah. are normally talking about the terpene that is present in mangoes that will then make you feel higher. Um, from what I've seen about like the bioavailability of myrcene and the amount of myrcene that is present in mangoes, which means that when you eat it, like how much of it actually enters your system, um, our body metabolizes terpenes really, really quickly, specifically if you're going edible route of administration, right? Um, so I, it's hard for me, it's difficult for me as a scientist to believe that eating a mango, which has relatively low amounts of myrcene that are bioavailable that then get metabolized almost immediately, would like make it to the brain to have like a significant effect. Um, but I, I'm much more convinced of the fact that if you were to believe that that were true and you had that in your head, that that would absolutely happen for you. And like, I don't think there's anything wrong with the placebo effect. Like while we're just on the topic of placebo, like ultimately at the end of the day, what are we trying to do? We're trying to, we're trying to have an effect. You're looking, you're looking for an experience. So people ask me sometimes like about, like I, I take CBD every day. And I, it helps me a lot. And people have asked me about it being like, how are you sure it's not a placebo? And I'm like, you know what? I actually could not answer that for you with 100% certainty because no one can. And I don't think it matters whether or not it's a placebo because it works for me. And so I think that like coming to like mango and the science and um, yeah, from what I've from what I've seen, I don't believe like scientifically that anything biologically is going on other than altering your expectation of what it will feel like. Right on. And that's in line what uh, Dr. Ethan Russo shared with us during the Shaping Fire uh, Sessions video, too, when we were talking about eating food to support your, your endocannabinoid system. He also agrees with you that it is... Um, um, it's just expectation, and there's nothing going on at a physiological level. But, you know, that doesn't mean that uh, any of this mango um, mythology is going to slow down one iota. So <laughs> so let's go ahead and move on. So so in, here in set three, I want to talk about um, dosing thresholds for efficacy, because um, in serious and chronic patients, um, this is something they're constantly struggling with. Um, so many patients fall into, like, the overall 
bucket of immune disorders, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, lupus, Hashimoto, Epstein-Barr. I mean, there are so many of these people when you put them all together, um, and they're, they're, so many of them are using cannabis now. Some cannabis seems to help a lot. More cannabis helps some people, but heroic doses are hard to determine and may not give increasingly better results. And so even though somebody is really sick, more cannabis may or may not be the solution though maybe it is because of their their um, tolerance. So, so my question for you is, what is the efficacy threshold point um, uh, between these serious imbalances and knowing what is the maximum they should take that makes sense? Because we, we don't want patients wasting money on too many cannabinoids, but the difference between 50 milligrams of whole plant plant CBD and 200 milligrams of whole plant CBD really can make a difference in certain patients. Oh, absolutely. So, okay. I also have to just say like, just little disclaimer here. I am not a medical professional or doctorate. I'm like a research scientist. My right, like all of my expertise is just on like molecular pharmacology of cannabinoids in the body, but I will speak to what I personally believe, um, about efficacy and dosing. Right. Uh, which is that, I think in general, what you're looking for for every person is what's called the therapeutic minimum. That is the amount of cannabinoids that you need to take in so that you have a therapeutic effect, but not any more than that. Because when you start taking in more than what would be the therapeutic minimum, you can start getting negative effects like tolerance or withdrawal, right? Or like off target effects. Uh, and in terms of like, what is that therapeutic minimum? I mean, this is where unfortunately it's again, with what we were talking about earlier between you and I, it's it's dependent a lot by the person and what therapeutic indication they're looking for. Um, and, you know, what it's, it, it's so complicated because there is no one-stop fill-out, like, form for saying you are this tall, you weigh this much, and so this much is the amount that, I mean, you know that very mm-hmm. well. Um, and this is something that we've actually been struggling with uh, in terms of, like, adding like uh, medical validity to cannabis it's something that's a that's a big barrier i think in my mind is that um some people can't wrap their brains around the fact that we we can't actually tell you what dose is beneficial like largely that responsibility is going on to the consumer or the patient right like more and more like what you were talking about with citizen science we're realizing that it's up to us to do this experimentation to figure out what it is and a, a lot of people in the general public feel like not capable of making that decision right um so i'm just going to explain something that um and this is it only works for people who can monitor their symptoms with a number um but it's basically called it's called a titration and a titration means adding something slowly until you reach like an equilibrium that's like the like i guess the layman's way of explaining it and whenever you go to a doctor and i'm 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 talking mostly right now mental health is probably the the easiest example you go to a psychiatrist um they usually start you on the lowest dose of something and then you go back and you see them like once a week for like a few weeks and then they decide like okay we have to increase it right and then you increase it and then you see them once a week for a couple weeks and then like maybe you increase it maybe you stay the same um what they are doing is a titration which means that they're starting at the lowest possible dose and then monitoring the effects of that molecule 
at, on you specifically as a patient. Um, so in lieu of being able to do that with cannabinoids, with, with the, depending on your, your medical professional, which also if you have a medical professional that you could be honest with, that would be the best case scenario. And you take down the information and you give them that information and then they give you, you know, they give you what they think about it. But in, in lieu of that, you could also do that yourself. So you keep a journal um, or an Excel sheet or, you know, any sort of, um, you know, ha- has to be written down though. And you, and you write everything down. You write down what you're using and, and why. And you give your symptoms that you're trying to reduce a, a number you you quantify them and i know it's going to be subjective and i know that it's going to be biased right because you're the one writing it but it's more information than you would have otherwise and it's it's a it's a good way to look at something with numbers sometimes and see um and so then you write everything down and you see that's also the easiest way to decide or determine whether or not you're developing a tolerance right um and eventually like for people who are just getting to know themselves for for people like like you and i who've been you know using cannabis for years and years um you know you end up just kind of with a a inherent knowledge of yourself i think Mm -hmm. um but for people who are just getting started you know i say start small (laughs) like it's always great to start small and then to increase and like give depending on what what you're looking at at improving um, you know, you could give it a little bit of time because certain effects take time to um, to see, you know, there's there's different effects level. There's acute effects of a molecule, which is like immediate. So the acute effects of THC would be the high, right? Uh, but then there's like more long-term effects, like the downregulation of CB1 receptors, that might take more time. It might take like a week or two weeks, it might take three weeks. Uh, it depends on the person. And if you're writing everything down and if you're being very intentional about your use, and I realize this sounds like kind of a lot of work, um, but once you get in the habit of doing it, it really just kind of becomes um, habit. There also are are apps out there that will help you, um, like tracking apps and and habit apps and things on on the phone that I think are, that can be really, really useful um, in in helping you to, to find out like what is the dose that's working and how is it working for you. And I think that, uh, unfortunately this this type of like self-evaluation is really useful for people who have symptoms that are that are outward facing right like that you can see um it becomes much more complicated when you talk about something like cancer and you can't see your tumors or your mets right yeah well um, it, at least in some of those cases um we can look at analytics but we'll talk more about cancer in a minute on the on the you know what you are saying <clears throat> is is accurate, right? Essentially, you're so you're calling for patients to try trade up, and then journal their results to get to know their cannabinoid tone and their body, uh, and how that matches with their relief goals. And and you know, Shaping Fire is big fans of of journaling and titration, um, and and not to discount this, but at the end, that just means that the answer is trial and error, which is what these. <laughs> patients are already doing you know it, it is and it's the it's the applied it, it trial sucks that error. we don't have a better answer for these folks because doing that you know that trial and error that that titration and journaling you're probably gonna hit like over medication a couple times and have some crappy paranoid experiences you're probably gonna have to be patient when you're feeling impatient because you're you're experiencing symptoms from whatever 
whatever's you know going on for you and you have to deal with those symptoms while you're trying to figure out if you need 20 50 or 200 milligrams of CBD a day like like that can take so much time especially if a patient is got you know somebody who's got you know Hashimoto Epstein-Barr and RA plus migraines it's like it's it's a total mess of 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 symptoms that you're trying to work your way through and um and you're right all we can do is you know suggest titration and and taking a journal and talking with other patients but golly that's a disappointing that's the best i can offer folks and and that sucks it's it's honestly one of the things that i would be that is most interesting to me is like formulations and understanding how specific formulations come into play with this because i think it's a huge i think it's a huge problem and i also think that um in terms of titration the other option is to go is to go outside in as i would say those the other option that's not so titration is slowly increasing until you reach equilibrium right um, the opposite of that would be outside in, which is taking the smallest dose and seeing what you feel and taking the largest dose you're comfortable with and seeing how you feel and then go, working your way in <laughs> from that, if that makes sense. Yeah, wow, taking that biggest dose, uh, uh, that sounds yeah. sketch. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, it's not. that's why I don't, I don't recommend it usually. I am just putting it out there as the alternative option of the... In, in general, I believe in some ways, in some forms of engineering, that's a fast way of finding the optimum. Yeah, maybe, maybe I would recommend that for all the cannabinoids except for THC. Yeah, I, I think that it's, like, it's a good one for CBD or CBG, possibly. Yeah. All right, so... All right, so then let's talk about uh, for cancer. And, and unfortunately, it may be a similar answer. So... Um, you know, taking tinctures for symptoms, right? So let's say, um, you know, primarily probably THC, but certainly there are applications for CBG and CBD. But let's just say generally 10 to 20 milligrams of day for THC spread out over the day is a very common dosage for folks who are in cancer treatment just to help with the side effects, you know, so they, they can get yep. back their appetite. They feel uh, some muscle relaxation. They just feel better in this body that they are inhabiting, right? So, you know, 10 to 20 a day, that's pretty typical. Versus the large doses of full extract cannabis oil, also known as RSO, for cancer patients who are going for a cure, right? For people who are going to a cure, that 10 to 20 milligrams a day, you know, depending on where they are in the cycle, will be 300 to 750 milligrams a day, which is like like a whole hell of a lot of THC and and the thing is is that you know the the go-to protocol has been 60 milliliters of of cannabis oil over 90 days and and that usually takes a big thwack at the cancer and um, either the person will decide to do another round or it's solved, or the patient doesn't want to do it anymore, either because their uh, PSA numbers haven't gone down, for example, or um, or they just can't handle that much THC in their life. It's a lifestyle choice. So, so all of that is to set up this question, which is, you know, how do we? Is is it even known? what the efficacy is against big monsters like cancer? 
for THC or is this simply, you know, how it's been done in the in the past of let's throw THC at it and see if it sticks and it just hasn't been updated with appropriate science yet. So so the cannabinoids show anti-tumor anti-tumorgenic properties like it's it's been established but the the way that we test this in the lab has a lot to do with usually uh usually it's either a cell culture or or animal model right Mm -hmm. um and then we have all the human information out there right like what you're describing all the people um with the protocol with the protocol and using really really high doses of of cannabinoids um so like is there science behind it yes do i know or can we can we say like what dose uh what threshold is the are the anti-tumor properties going to have effect no which is also why i think people lean towards more because in general yes like if you're going to err on the side if you want anti-tumor properties and you're trying to err on the side of, of getting those then in in theory more or a higher dose would be better than than less um, i had a patient tell me that she was going to go big or go home right <laughs> she's all like if i'm not going to do chemo i'm going to take all the thc that i can pack into my body because that's where all my chips are you know this is this is unrelated i mean it's not unrelated from the endocannabinoid system but it's it's unrelated to cannabis um but i think um one thing of interest whenever cancer comes up that i i mention is fasting um and the effect of ketosis and which uh, ketosis is when your body runs out of sugar uh, and begins uh, burning ketones for energy instead. It's fat. You're burning fat. Um, the endocannabinoid system is a fat signaling system. It's involved in this. There's a big shift that occurs. So it is related to endocannabinoid system, not necessarily related to cannabis, but there's a lot of evidence out there that fasting is very beneficial Um in terms of its like anti-tumor properties, like anti-metastatic properties, um, and it also just it's beneficial in, in general. But this is like I, this isn't the topic that we're on whatsoever. It's just something that I thought was worth mentioning. Um, Actually, it's kind of on topic here. Let me tie it in for you, because so many of the patients who are on um, high THC dosage um, full extract cannabis oil for cancer, you know, it's a very common that they get sleepy, right? They just nap all day long and their caregiver needs to arouse them to get them to eat and to go to the bathroom. And and one of the challenges with patients is to make sure they keep their weight up um, because they're spending so much time sleeping and they, they get over the munchies part of cannabis really quickly. And, and so generally patients lose weight um, in the last, you know, say four to five weeks of, of using a full extract cannabis oil for cancer. And wouldn't that be interesting if it is the decreased calorie intake, which in causes the boost to the immune system, which is playing a big role in that? I, I would think that it's synergistic for sure. Although I, I also like we have to mention that like obviously getting proper nutrition and like not losing a significant right. amount the of weight. The goal is, is to not is, lose weight, but it is, tends is to also happen. Important. No, absolutely. But it's there's I mean, in terms of like so cancer is the overactive and I'm not a cancer expert like whatsoever also. I just but but just in general, right? Like cancer is what happens when there's a mutation in your cells and then they're over they overactively um reproduce and grow. And they they are evading the immune system like normally normally um if our immune system was to be functioning um authentically or or correctly, then the immune system would identify those. I mean, we have mutations in our cells 
ourselves all the time. We have we have errors. Every single one of us, like probably right now, has at least one cell in our body. I could probably guarantee it. There's at least one cell in our body that's doing something wrong. All right, like mm-hmm. with the, our the, our bodies aren't perfect, um, but we have a system in place that like identifies those errors and fixes it. And cancer occurs where somehow the cancer cells are are evading that system, right? Um, and yeah, I think that and and the endocannabinoid system is integrally linked to immune function and to energy, uh, you know, energy homeostasis or, or energy balance. Uh, and cancer cells take up a lot of energy; they're replicating very rapidly. Um, and so there's there's all the anti tumor properties of the cannabinoids as well. But then there's all the endocannabinoid system interaction with the immune system. You know, it's it's really complicated. And um, I I could not imagine what I would feel like if I was if I was diagnosed with cancer so I can't I can't speak for sure what I would definitely do in that scenario because I know that when that happens and when you get that diagnosis your life changes forever and um, you know I could be saying something now that I believe I would do and I maybe wouldn't do it right right um, but it, it is my belief currently that if I were to be diagnosed with cancer that I would use cannabis and fast um, and then I would also be open to chemotherapy. I mean, I would be open to it, but I think it would not be the first um, stop. Right on. I want to go back, and I'm going to bite. Like, I heard you used a subtle change in your intonation when you used the word normally. And then in your next sentence, all the places that you would have used normally, you swapped out that word. And I want to bite. Um, why did you not choose to use the w- word normally to describe a function of the body? <laughs> I don't think, I, yeah, that's funny, Shango, that you picked up on that. Um, I don't think that, I don't like the word normal. Just, I, I dislike that word almost in every context or, or way that you could, in any way that you could use that word to describe human functionality, it doesn't fit. Um, so I think that's just kind of where that came from is that I, I even do, I slip up all the time. I used the word normally and then I think about it and I'm like, you know, that's not the most correct way to say that. Um, and that normal and using the word normal implies, uh, it, it implies that we have an understanding of, of human diversity and functionality that we just don't have. So uh, it's my personal opinion that I don't, I don't like using the word normal to describe anything having to do with humans. <laughs> right on. I'm with you. And, uh, and, and it, it assumes that there is an established standard that doesn't exist. It just right. doesn't exist. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You just, yeah, you hit, you hit that on the head with that one. I, I slipped up. I, I do it all the time. I don't believe there's a normal. Right on. Well, cool. Thank you. Because I, I, I heard, you know how you can hear someone's mind thinking as they build their sentence? And I heard, I heard you play with that. And I'm like, oh, there's something going on there. I want to know. So, <laughs> so let, let's finish up this episode with a follow-up question from part one that we did a few weeks back. Um, you know, we talked a lot about tolerance breaks uh, during um, part one of, of this endoca- endocannabinoid mechanics series. And um, and the number one com- question I got from folks was about taking a tolerance break from cannabinoids that are not THC, because you said something really interesting. You talked about how often you do THC tolerance breaks and how they're good for you, but you also said that you don't take tolerance breaks from CBD, and that's what everybody was asking me about. They're like, 
ask her why she doesn't take them for CBD. Doesn't she need to, um, you know, uh, doesn't Miyabi need to take a break from, uh, you know, CBD because they may be getting a, a tolerance from CBD as well? And then I got the same questions. Well, how about THCA and how about CBG then? Because patients are all taking these various non-THC cannabinoids and, and they all expect that they need to take a break from them uh, just like they would THC. But by your comment that you don't take one from CBD left everyone in a quandary. So will you flesh that out? <laughs> So I realized that I actually misspoke because I use full-spectrum products, so I don't actually technically take breaks from THC either. Because even there's even trace <laughs> amounts in your yeah, CBD I mean, stuff. It, yeah, there's small amounts, and then I, I, use, I smoke hemp flower, right? So there's going to be small amounts of Delta-8 in there as well. Um, but, you know, that's, it's small. Usually it's well under, it's going to be well under 1%. Um, so I don't take breaks from the cannabinoids, I guess, in general. There we go. That would be the main way of putting it. But in terms of like THC and like larger, like relatively larger doses of THC, um, I I currently am taking like a one to one um, CBG CBD extract every morning, and then like it has small amounts of THC present, um, and a bunch of other things, right? <laughs> like whatever else is in is in the plant. But um, it's interesting because like, do I need to take a tolerance break from these? Okay. So what is a tolerance break and what is the, what is the point of a tolerance break for people? Right? Like uh, in, in general, the added benefit of a tolerance break, there's a couple added benefits. Like the first added benefit of a tolerance break is going to be to decrease your tolerance. Um, that means that you are going to be able to get a larger therapeutic effect from less, right? That's the, that's the number one reason why people want to take tolerance breaks. Um, I don't use to, from my experience with CBD and the trace amounts of THC and now CBG that I'm experiencing with, I don't experience a tolerance effect because I'm using them at relatively low doses. So it just means that like, I'm not taking more every day. I'm taking the same amount every single day and I'm still getting the therapeutic effect. So I'm not experiencing tolerance. So for that reason, like in number one, like there is not really a need for a tolerance break in that one way. Um, in terms of like, that's the first reason to have a tolerance break. The second reason is kind of like a lesser reason to have a tolerance break would be just to like judge your perspective of like whether or not something is working for you, whether or not it's having a negative effect on your life. Um, I have taken breaks for, for that reason. That's actually one of the main reasons why I take regular THC breaks. It's the reason why I stopped drinking a couple years ago. Um, just to like re just to check in, right. To check in and being like, how is this affecting my life? How is this affecting my health? Um, and I think that that's important to do. Um, but for me personally, the giant added therapeutic benefit that I get from, you know, CBD now CBG and trace amounts of THC plus, plus whatever else is in the plant that we're talking about, right? Like the terpenes and the flavonoids and, you know, bioactive fatty acids and everything. Like those benefits that I receive that increase my quality of life. I mean, it far, to me, it is far outweighing any negative effect that it's having on my health, of which I don't see um, any negative effect on my health. Um, that's obviously subjective. That's something that I'm determining for myself. Although um, I have seen doctors that say that I'm healthy. So, 
there's that. Um, I, I want to bring us back to the the sharp edge point on the question, though. We're talking about, uh, you know, we, we, we've been talking about so far in, the, in this answer, like THC and how you do your tolerance breaks. But specifically, the question is, are tolerance breaks beneficial for CBD, CBG, and THCA? They work the same way, yes? Yeah, and they're acting on different receptors, though. So, I mean, I think that that's, like, the main thing to point out is that all of these rare cannabinoids that have different pharmacologies, when you take tolerance breaks from them, you'll be affecting different receptors, and it'll be a similar thing, though, where you're, like, resensitizing your your body to the molecule. Although I haven't really seen a lot of people developing tolerance, unless they're taking very, very high doses, Um I guess it just depends. I, and I'm I'm not like the most knowledgeable person on this. I would love to hear from other people uh, what they think about this. But, you know, developing a tolerance, it seems like at least THC develops a pretty rapid tolerance. Like you, it's easy for the CB1 receptors to be downregulated and then for you to get less of that intoxicating effect. I have not um, seen that. And, and I maybe with the other rare cannabinoids and maybe I also haven't looked hard enough because to be fair, like there's not a lot of information out there on the um, other rare cannabinoids. I would be very interested to hear from people if they develop tolerance to the other rares and like what that looks like and what uh, it would look like for them to take tolerance breaks. I'd, I'm interested. In, the in the that. common the common background of this is uh, since this whole set three is is focused on dosing thresholds for efficacy in chronic and serious illness. These are generally folks that have got some a combination of of serious things like you know ms and ra lupus and ra you know uh, lupus hashimoto epstein bar ra right like like people who have got serious dysfunctions in their body and these folks describe this experience of going bouncing from solution to solution because their body adapts to the solutions quickly and their suffering returns and so it is incredibly common for me to hear from these 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 high difficulty patients that yeah i did you know cbd worked for five weeks and then it stopped working and so i moved on to cbg and cbg helped decrease the inflammation for a few weeks and then it stopped working and then they moved on to mushrooms and then that worked for a while and that stopped working and then they're like so then i went back around to cbd oh cbd was now working again and so so many of these patients they hop from method to method to method to to I mean, and, and, and they're even switching from drugs that have different methods of action, right? So it's not even always the method of action. It's as if they need to keep um, goosing their immune system with different solutions to refresh in it, right? And so yeah. it's these folks that are looking for any way to refresh their body's reaction to these natural plant medicines and... You know, when you said, you know, you know, you know in- inaccurately that you take a break from from <laughs> CBD, people were all over this because they're like, oh, you know, do, should we not be taking our breaks from CBD? And I think that the answer is actually, yeah, they should be. 
Well, I think it also depends. So for people who have really high inflammatory and chronic disorders, like this is, again, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a medical professional. I'm not a nutritionist. I am just a scientist. And this is just my opinion of my life. But, you know, it's not just the cannabinoids that I use to manage my chronic disorders. I have altered pretty much every other aspect of my life that you could that you could I, I shape my entire life around my chronic mental health chronic pain and chronic GI issues um, I try and maintain the lowest possible like systemic inflammation levels I mean we talked about inflammation in the last one I think inflammation is at the heart of a lot of these problems specifically immune system problems um, and so I would say as just as advice um, in my opinion is that you have to find a way to potentiate the cannabinoids. You have to find a way to make them more effective. Um, and there are a number of ways you can do that, right? Like by modifying your diet, modifying your fasting or like your eating window. I take, I take cold showers and do breathing exercises, right? Like people who've heard of Wim Hof. Um, and then there's like stretching yoga, mental health work, like cardio, like low grade cardio strength training, like working out, like there's, there's all of these other options that you could do that potentiate, they increase the efficacy of the cannabinoids. Um, and I know that for a number of reasons, those things are extremely difficult to implement in your life. And they feel like this all, I mean, when I say all of them out loud, it's like, oh my God, I can't believe I do all of those things. Um, so it's really like about one at a time and certain things will work for certain people more, more than others. Right. Um, but I can't tell you what has worked for me or like, has any of the, have any of those one things worked for me or is it the combination that of all of these things that, that are somehow working together, um, you know, I, I don't know. <laughs> um, that that's actually a really good point is to, to to bring us back to the holistic nature of this. And while I while I know that the 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 inflammation patients that you know I, I've worked with would would howl at the idea that that they do weight training, right? Um, and that they they lift things because most of them feel so broken and weak. Um, the body doesn't really know. I mean, for this application, the body doesn't really know the difference between a one pound weight and a twenty pound weight. All it knows is that it's it's being put into a stress and release of the muscle sets, and so it is going through the the body actions. Um, that that respond to that, and there is healing and efficacy in that. And so, you know, I, I like the fact that you recognized the mental impossibility of that for these patients. Oh, it's and, it's, and yet I, <laughs> just find something heavier than nothing, or just or just nothing, just body training. Start with yeah. what you know. Start with what is good for you. Like I'm, I have hypermobility issues. I injure myself really, really easily. I don't lift like. I mean, now that I've been lifting for a while, I've been able to increase like my weights. But um, you know, it's 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 all about what you're comfortable with and and what actually brings things to to your life and that are that are manageable to you. Um, to do, I think that's like the the starting point. And then like what you said about a one pound weight. I mean, you do a one pound weight for six months, it'll turn into a five pound weight. You do that for another six months, it'll turn into a 10 pound weight. And then yeah. you'll get to 20, you know? <laughs> right on. Well, uh, Miyabi, thank you so much for joining me again on Shaping Fire. Um, I enjoyed our first interview for part one so much that I was glad that you were open to do a, a part two in endocannabinoid mechanics. And, and people love it, you know, to be able to hear this level of scientific detail from, you know, from a scientist who is able to put it in... <laughs> 
layman terms, human terms, uh, is a real joy for most of us. Uh, so, so thank you so much for sharing your expertise and good cheer. Well, thank you so much for having me. Honestly, I really, I really enjoy your questions and your, your listeners must be, uh, they must be a pretty sharp bunch, you know? So don't, <laughs> I mean, in terms of like the lay, in terms of layman type stuff, I'm, I'm excited. The questions are not layman questions. Right on. Excellent. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty stoked with the Shaping Fire audience too. People, people come here when they want to get serious and, and I'm grateful they're here. So, so thank you, Miyabi. If you have missed part one of endocannabinoid mechanics with Dr. Miyabi Shields, you can go back and enjoy Shaping Fire episode number 78. That was the part one. It is fabulous and you should definitely check it out if you just started with this one. Um, if you would like to learn more from Miyabi, I strongly suggest that you follow their social media, which is just absolutely filled with rich content and how I found out about them. Uh, the more reliable platform for that right now seems to be Instagram, and their Instagram is at Miyabi PhD, and that's M I Y A B E PhD. So Instagram seems to be the best place to go. Um, however, um, uh, you know, the, the secret is that the TikTok material is actually more fun for the moment. Uh, and the TikTok, uh, but keep, 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 TikTok keeps deleting Miyabi's account. But for now, it is also at Miyabi PhD. So follow both the Instagram account and the TikTok account to stay up on, uh, you know, festive cannabinopathic learning with Miyabi. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news, exclusive videos, and giveaways. On the Shaping Fire website, you also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. Be sure to follow on Instagram for all original content not found on the podcast. That's at Shaping Fire and at Shango Los on Instagram. Be sure to check out the Shaping Fire YouTube channel for exclusive interviews, farm tours, and cannabis lectures. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Los.